You know, I'm trying to cut short applause for her, not her, me, me, I am here, me, me. <laughs> Sorry. No, but now, seriously, enough of this bad taste joke. I, I will begin with precisely one of the aspects of my great appreciation of Jacqueline's work. Uh, I hope all of you did read, it was published when, two, three weeks ago, your wonderful comment in London Review of books about all the racial violence against women implication of that Pistorius trial in South Africa. I find this simply a breathtaking, wonderful text. But uh, I, will, I will just tell you frankly in what way I intend to cheat. The original plan was today Brandon Hegel, tomorrow Tomorrow, uh, Schiller, aesthetics, and the last days, more theology and so on, or politics, it doesn't matter. I decided, nonetheless, in view of all these latest political events and so on, to do today mostly some political comments, reactions, reflections, and then move towards death drive, a little bit of my new variations on my internal, eternal, sorry, topic, Lacan Hegel. Then, tomorrow, it's the boring part, but I love it. It's, uh, you know who is Robert Brandom, the high priest of this so-called Pittsburgh Hegelians. It's basically analytic philosophy, Habermasian way to try to redeem Hegel. And what I will comment is a book, and this is very generous of Brandom, that he made available on the web for free. It's a book, detailed commentary of Hegel's phenomenology of spirit. While I deeply appreciate his works, it's a wonderful piece of consequent thinking and so on and so on, I nonetheless think that it, how should I put it, misses the point of Hegel. That's a kind of gentrification, domest domestication of Hegel. For example, and I like this example, uh, you know, uh, I'm now probably repeating myself, I mentioned this here, something interesting is happening with Hegel in the last decades. Till around, I would say, 20, maybe 30 years ago, there were two Hegels. The conservative Hegel embodied mostly in the British tradition uh, uh, around 1900 and so on, Hegel as kind of a warning against the, the too much liberal freedom of uh, bourgeois society, this conservative proto-fascist Hegel, and the leftist revolutionary Hegel. Liberals were mostly against Hegel, dismissing him either as a dangerous nihilist or as a dangerous uh, totalitarian. By liberals, I mean, of course, Karl Popper, but not only him, for whom, again, Hegel is the proverbial bad guy. Uh, what is happening in the last decades is that precisely this, let's call it with an irony, of course, third way Hegel, Hegel who is neither conservative nor revolutionary, is almost occupying the leading place in at least Western academic debates. The liberal Hegel, and as I developed in my books, 
two aspects of this, like now, now I'm giving you the shibboleth or the to feed your Stalinist instincts, how do you recognize these enemies? No, it's two features. The first one is the, uh, the uh, much more modest reading of Hegel. The idea is forget about Hegelian ontology, metaphysics, and so on. What Hegel is doing is simply to providing a kind of a general epist like epistemolog epistemology or description of or all possible ways of rational argumentation. And forget about ontology, theology, and so on. It's simply methodological Hegel. Hegel is a gener general discursive theorist. All possible modes of argumentation, all possible modes we can describe the world. Uh, the other aspect is, uh, and here you recognize liberal Hegelians, recognition. Hegel is perceived, and that's the liberal reading of Hegel, as the one who pursues in his political work, but not only there, the idea of full mutual recognition. Freedom means mutual recognition. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe some of you know better and you should correct me. But I find it so interesting that there are a couple of crucial places where you may disagree or disagree with Hegel, but where he clearly and in a central way refers to recognition, but again in a weird, unpleasant way. And none of these guys mentions this. Like, the whole Hegelian argument for, in defense of death penalty, is based on recognition. Hegel's crazy idea is that by death penalty, you treat the accused, the condemned, you recognize him or her as a full human being, responsible. Hegel's idea is that if you prohibit death penalty, then you are not really recognizing the murderer because you are treating him not as an autonomous agent, but as a victim of circumstances and so on and so on. Now there are, I will, okay, I will not enter into, do I agree here with Hegel or not? I'm just saying that there is maybe one thing which moderately works for Hegel, which is that it's interesting to note how many regimes which prohibited death penalty did continue to execute people, but just renaming it, like even October Revolution is not clear here. One of the first things that October Revolution did is, of course, abolish death penalty. Then uh, immediately in 1919, in the Civil War, they caught some white counter-revolutionary generals, they shot them. And all the Western liberals were enraged. But didn't you abolish death penalty? How can you do this? Uh, the answer of Soviet Union, sorry, this is my Stalinist pleasure, I like it, was a wonderful one. But this wasn't a death penalty, it was just preventive measure. Like, it has nothing to do with death penalty and so on. It was, or they claim, educational measure, but that don't matter. What I was saying is that, you know, this is a model of what, for this liberal reading of Hegel to work, how much you lose. About this tomorrow and the last day, I think, you know, the problem with Schiller is, okay, maybe I already even mentioned this the last time that I was here. Schiller interests me because he ended up as a proto-fascist. 
I think, although I don't totally agree with him, with Jean-Luc Nancy, or it was the other guy, they were friends, uh, Philippe Lacoula Bart, that uh, one of the, at least, intellectual origins of fascism is aesthetization of politics. You know, for example, you find it directly in his famous letter to Furtwängler. Furtwängler, you know, the great conductor, national conservative, but nonetheless more or less an honest guy. And I cannot resist improvising of this. Uh, like, uh, it's so unjust history, how whenever people say classical music conducting and Nazism, they mention Furtwängler. Wait a minute, why not Karajan, who was an infinitely worse guy? Karajan was a member of the Nazi party. He used his influence to denounce other people and so on. Furtwängler was a kind of honest conservative who did the thing. He stepped down in 34. He tried, he thought that he will be able with his influence to save the Jews, even in Berliner Philharmonic. When it didn't work, he stepped down and he remained the symbol. It's the same in literature, maybe even with the twist of anti-feminism at the end of German Democratic Republic. Two of their greatest writers, icons, were Christa Wolf and uh, Heiner Miller. Heiner Miller was much more involved with Stasi, but to him, everything was pardoned. While they only caught Christa Wolf writing for half a year some reports, she had to, but everything was rendered public. And it's clear that she denounced no one. Her reports were so useless that after half a year, the Stasi simply stopped any pressure on her. No, it ruined her chances of Nobel Prize. Everyone knows this. Like, while Heiner Miller, you know, with his daring, masculine arrogance, uh, did it. But what I, back to this, why is Schiller interesting? Because he's nonetheless a great writer. And at the end comes, you should read it. You find very smooth English translation simply on the web. Uh, uh, the, the song on the bell is the translation. Gesang, Lied von Glocke, whatever. It's uh, the best short poetic resume of fascism that I know. It describes an ideal patriarchal society which is clearly based on sexual division. You know, all these men, one man goes around to bring spoils, to conquer foreign countries. Woman stays at home, take care of home. Everything is nice. Then people go crazy, French Revolution, and he openly refers, there is no doubt, to French Revolution, because he says, liberté, égalité, fraternité, and uh, the mob goes crazy. Everything goes wrong. But it's very interesting that he, Schiller, blames women. As if the source of French Revolution was that women no longer were satisfied with their role of properly staying at home, taking care there, but become a wonderful title, Laughing Hyenas. And then finally, men re-established their authority, and then comes the bell. Because then you have a long proto-fascist description of the production of a bell, of a big church bell, and how this brings people together. It's pure aesthetization of 
politics, this feeling of community, and everything is in order again. No wonder that this song, although it's strange to imagine why Schiller was at the same time celebrated as the great poet of freedom. But from Schiller's time, through Bismarck Germany, through the Nazi times, in a strange way, even in German Democratic Republic, this song was celebrated as the ultimate of German attitude. And I am glad to tell you that I think that when Schiller speaks about, blames all the misfortunes of French Revolution on crazy women, and women, the definition of a crazy woman is the woman who is no longer controlled by benevolent paternal authority. They run amok and they laugh like crazy. And I think I identified maybe the model of this madness. It's, of course, my beloved uh, Caroline von Schlegel, who later married uh, Schelling. She was pretty much to the left, Jacobin, and uh, she reports in one of her letters that when she and her friends were reading this poem by Schiller, they had to laugh so much that they fell on <laughs> down from their chair and so on. It was absolutely a primordial hatred between of them. But what I'm telling you is this. Uh, I think that that lecture on Schiller that I planned for tomorrow works only with if you were to know the texts. Because what is so interesting is how Schiller arrived at this point. His proto-fascism was a conclusion, and in this way he tried to resolve some deadlocks. But since he is nonetheless a great writer, these deadlocks are very interesting. Like, if you want to do more Schiller, read it. You can get it. Very good translation, free on the web. His play, Don Carlos where you have something extraordinary happening, which is, I think, crucial for the genesis of fascism. A weak king broken down, and at the end, this wonderful figure of the great inquisitor. Blind man who controls everything, he is this post-traditional authority. Enters and forces the king to sacrifice his son, and so on, and so on. I think it's a crucial moment in defining what happens with authority in early modern society, how but, uh, standard patriarchal authority is replaced with another type of authority. And then you can show it in a nice way how, out of all these deadlocks, the only way open to Schiller was, uh, was kind of a proto-fascist vision of aestheticized uh, of aestheticized politics. Because what's so weird is that Schiller's first mega hit play, Roberts, the Reubern, there it's on the contrary male bonding which is blamed. You know, Karl Moore, the hero, uh, establishes a group of robbers who are fighting, they want a social revolution, and in this way he betrays his love. The woman, so, the woman is on the side of family and order, and the origin of revolutionary terror is male bonding not controlled by feminine, feminine gentleness, uh, uh, sympathy, and so on, humility, and so on. But how did he come? That was interest me. From here to, to uh, the lead 
on the, uh, the song on the bell, where again, it's women as laughing hyenas who are the source of evil. It's a wonderful line. So, but again, for this to work, you have to read the text. So what I will do then uh, on the last day, now, two days from now on Friday, after going in detail tomorrow through Brandom, don't be too afraid because I will be talking about very concrete things, analysis which even refer to our experience and so on. And my point is precise, because you know why I'm so traumatized by Brandom? Because basically I find attractive what he is doing. What he is doing is in a way what I sometimes try to do it, to show in the terms of our common sense reasoning how Hegel makes sense. He wants to break out of the Hegelian jargon, but I think he sacrifices too much. The Hegel that we get there, it's a Hegel where what is really crazy, subversive in Hegel disappears. So this tomorrow, and then, uh, and then uh, the last day, I will do something on theology and politics, some new stuff, which will reflect on what will happen, but it's a failed event, I must inform you. I'm a pessimist. Directly from here on Saturday, I fly to Tel Aviv. I go to Ramallah, the alternate uh, Walter Benjamin conference. But it didn't turn out. Most of the people who promised to be there uh, canceled in the last minute. And uh, there is a, a very sad tension which makes me depressive here at work. Namely, Palestinians, some of them, I respect their wish, wanted to do just another political event, protesting Israeli oppression and so on. While I totally agree with it, because what is happening now in Israel is like, it's simply, you know, if you think that Arabs are religious fundamentalists, where? Go to Israel. I mean, like recently, I read that three ministers in Netanyahu government now openly declare that we should stop this game of two-state solution, West Bank is ours. Why? Because it says so in the Bible. I mean, are we aware what they are saying? Like, if this is not religious fundamentalism, then I don't know what religious fundamentalism uh, means. And then you have other, did you read about this moment, crazy statements? I almost like them when Netanyahu recently said in an interview that uh, it wasn't really Hitler who is responsible of the Holocaust, that Hitler just, it's serious, it's not a joke, that Hitler just wanted to throw the Jews out. But that uh, Mufti Husseini, whatever, the leader of Palestinians, who effectively met Hitler, but not at that point, a little bit later, Netanyahu treats, but nonetheless, that's Netanyahu's stories, was afraid that throwing the Jews out meant this is, uh, that they will come to Palestina. So the story, totally invented, is that Netanyahu told, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Hitler told to uh, Husseini, I want to throw Jews out, then Husseini 
told him, okay, but where will they go to us, to Palestina? And that Hitler replied, okay, but what should they do with the Jews? And then that Husseini said, burn them. And that this gave to Netanyahu the idea of, sorry, to, to, uh, to Hitler, <laughs> the idea of, but what I like so much, and here you get the good side of my Jewish friends. My leftist Jewish friends then invented a whole series of stories bringing this logic to the end, and I love it. Like, one of them claimed that they discovered some new manuscripts, ancient, of course, with some illustrations, where it's clear that when Pontius Pilatus condemns Christ to, uh, uh, to, uh, to, 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 to death, that there is a figure like Mohammed whispering to Pontius Pilatus this, you know that, like, already there, not the Jews, the, the, the Muslims, proto-Muslims, they didn't yet exist, were there, and so on. No, the situation is, uh, is, uh, the situation is really tragic, because as a reaction to this then, because this conference was supposed to take place at Birzeit University in Ramallah, Part of it will, but unfortunately, I'm really sad about this. As a reaction to the renewed Israeli violence, the Birzeit University gave a hint at organizers that Israeli Jews will not be allowed to enter the university. Now, I find this crazy, and I understand it, but I find it very sad. For example, my friend Udi Aloni, was prohibited to enter, to enter the university there. And even, I maybe already mentioned it here, it's, there is an even sadder, much more sad event taking place there where, uh, I will try to, no, okay, not now, but when uh, uh, Udi Aloni, maybe I will told you this story, now it's all confirmed, organized uh, concert in, I think, at Colombia or at several places of a Palestinian rapper, singer, very popular, who also plays a central role in Udi's new film. And this singer did a song on criticizing honor killings among Palestinians. And this singer and Udi were attacked by allegedly hardline Western leftists at Columbia, that why mention this? This means supporting uh, Zionism. In the sense of, uh, you know, if honor killings happen there, they are in reality the effect of Zionist occupation. We shouldn't talk about this now, and so on, and so on. And of course, the singer was shocked because he was accused of not mentioning, ignoring, Israeli occupation and Udi. But this is madness, I'm sorry. These two guys were arrested a couple of times by Israeli police. They're doing nothing but this. And what, instead of us being glad that with regard to honor killings, we are not doing our Western patronizing thing, you know, primitive Palestinians. No, they have already their own fight. And these are the same people who also fight uh, 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 Israeli pressure and so on. We should be glad about it. No, when you get such things, and now I will go even more into pessimism. Sorry, I cannot avoid this comment. For example, I think a big 
catastrophe, political, happened a couple of days ago. You saw the news. I don't know how widely it was reported here in the UK, but I think it's one of the greatest ethico-political catastrophes of Europe. European Union made a deal with Turkey. Basically, it's pure bribery. It's, we pay you money if you stop the flow of the refugees. The point is that, as my friends immediately noticed, it's almost the, what, uh, what <coughs> Erdogan is doing, the Turkish boss, it's almost the opposite of what Putin is doing. Putin is punishing Europe by, how do you call it, closing, cutting off the flow of, of gas, of uh, turning off the pipe if Europe, if he doesn't like Europe, Erdogan threatens to open the pipe of refugees. And it's pure deal. They promised to Erdogan first, as the first installment, three billion, uh, three billion of euros, then a better treatment in Europe, all of it, just to close off, get rid of the flow of refugees. And then, that's what makes me furious. Then they talk about war on terror. You know, the usual reaction to Paris attacks was this uh, left humanism. Uh, oh my God, why war on terror? We cannot just fight terror by terror. This just brings more terror and so on. Okay, there is some element of truth in it. But I plea for a much more radical approach. Oh, it's obvious that they don't mean seriously the war on terror. What war on terror is going on when they tolerate Turkey, which, as everyone knows, is half supporting the Islamic State? And it's not even secret now. Did you notice it was in the newspapers, a small note, that the chief of the Turkish secret police, who is, as if by chance, the brother of Erdogan, already made a public statement claiming that the Islamic State nonetheless expresses the will of the people. International community should, uh, should recognize it, start dialogue, and so on, and so on. And we make a deal with Turkey. It's also clear what Turkey did. Turkey used this pact with the West of fighting the terror, but what they are really bombing the Turks are the Kurds. And the Kurds are the only ones who are really fighting the Islamic State. state. Seriously. So again, I'm much more tempted to play this game, you know. You talk about war on terror while making pact with Turkey, Saudi Arabia, who are discreetly the main supporters of ISIS and so on. Like, what is going on here? It's not, it's just this demonizing of ISIS, but all the conditions, all those who support ISIS are getting a preferential treatment against the only forces which are seriously fighting ISIS. And also, although some people accused me of almost turning a European nationalist and so on, but I am not. I'm just for organized reception of refugees precisely to prevent racist hatred and so on. And what is happening now in this way of making these dirty deals with Turkey, I claim, it's a total ethico-political catastrophe. You see, that's the problem. It's not that uh, they are too fanatical, war on war on terror, pushing it too far. No, the problem is they are not taking it seriously. It's madness. 
You talk about war on terror and then discreetly you make pacts with those who effectively support it. It's all well documented. Although now he denies it publicly, but everybody knows it. My Kurdish friends told me. You know, we find this in the media that uh, ISIS is selling oil and surviving by oil. Sorry, but ISIS, Islamic State, is landlocked. How does it sell oil? How does it come to, to the sea? <laughs> Through Turkey. Everybody knows it, and so on. You know, like, it's, it's, uh, it's such a deep, how should I put it, uh, ethical disorientation, you know. And also, this is my problem with the left, that they avoid the difficult questions. For example, I don't know if you already know this story. It was maybe published somewhere. Recently, I gave an interview for the Deutsche Zeitung, the German Daily, and then at the end, they asked me to answer to some readers' questions. And there was one question which found an incredible echo. Hundreds of people replied to it, agreeing with the guy. It was a simple question. I claim to be democratic. And I support Angela Merkel in that call, you know, refugees, you should come. But isn't it absolutely clear that the majority of Germans are against too many immigrants? So, and the decision to allow immigrants in hundreds of thousands to come in is a serious big decision. Wasn't this a paradigmatic anti-democratic decision? Why didn't they... Why didn't they ask the German people what they want? You know, my answer to this is a very uh, cynical one. It's, no, democracy, at least if by democracy we mean what we have now, de facto, as a ruling system, should not be the absolute limit. There are situations where you have the right to say, fuck democracy, I mean to impose, to do something in every way possible, even if it goes against the, the will of the majority or whatever, and so on and so on. That was, if some of you were stupid enough to listen to that uh, orgy that we had, me, Varoufakis, and uh, uh, Assange, that's also my problem with Varoufakis. This guy really believes in democracy, you know. I don't, like, if you watched it, you, Notice where there was a gentle misunderstanding between the two of us. His idea was democratize Europe. How? For example, all the sessions of those mysterious European community bodies, all the sessions should be publicly transmitted. Well, she thinks that, what? I think that what if the result were to be even worse if you don't change many other things? Like, for example, I know at least how, what representatives of my state, Slovenia, and some others who play here very bad role will be. Because the majority opinion in most post-communist East European countries is, screw the Greeks, we are more poor, why should we help the lazy Greeks? If the negotiations there were to be public, they would have been even more against Greece to please their populist uh, constituency back in their country. And also Varoufakis' counterpoint was, because my other simple point was, okay, let's say we are that committee which, whose meetings are now secret. 
Okay, we make it public. It's clear what I would have done. Let's say that I'm the evil guy. I call a discreet private meeting one day before, and we make all the decisions, the majority. Then Varoufakis said, but this is illegal. No, it's not even necessarily illegal. You know what's my point? My point is that people are not a priori good in the sense of, you know, if you just tell them the truth. No. Ideology is a real hard material practice, to put it like this. It really works in everyday life. My God, all these guys, obviously, they didn't read Marx. Remember what already Marx knew when he says that uh, commodity fetishism remains even if you theoretically totally enlightened it, and so on and so on. You know, this is very interesting because it's the same problem as the one Freud was facing when he discovered that after his early enthusiasm that you can have a perfect interpretation, the patient even pretends at least to accept it, but the symptom persists. Something more has to be done. And it's, uh, it's, the same, it's the same here. I understand, not agree, I understand ordinary people when you take into account how they experience situation and so on. Uh, and that's why, not because I'm in any way against the refugees. I plea for talking, and not because I'm in any way Islamophobic. I think we should talk openly about these things because I had a big debate in Berlin two weeks ago where I was attacked by the idea that, but why do I focus now on women's rights in Muslim society? Now we have the humanitarian problem of thousands of refugees. Can we put this to a later time? I see this as a shortcut to catastrophe. Precisely now we should talk about it. Of course, that's the whole point, not in the racist way. But we should talk about all this openly. And also, of course, also in a way which criticizes us. That is to say, it's not enough to say the way Muslims treat women predominantly, if it is predominantly, I don't know, it's unacceptable for us. Immediately, one should mention our counterpart, which is at least, okay, maybe not as bad, but yes, it's the same category. Like, if nothing else, Catholic pedophilia in the Catholic Church. We, but about all this, we should talk openly. If not, if we, if we continue this simple, uh, this politically correct left wing, you know, like the main argument again, ah, the argument against me, I loved it, were triple, three arguments. The first one was this one. It's not the appropriate moment to talk about this. Uh, I disagree with this, you know why? Because we, I'm, again, my whole point is, of course, we are also to blame. We are even ultimately to blame. But uh, there is a tendency going on, independently of Islam in the world, which I find very worrying, which is that uh, sexual difference is reasserted, and by sexual difference, I mean the subordination of women to men, is 
re-emerging as the central ethico-political question for some people. And this goes from Putin to Mugabe to others and so on. This is what I find so strange about, for example, a movement like Boko Haram. This should give us to think that you have a movement which really wants to revolutionize society, but the basic premise of this woman is Boko Haram, which vaguely translated, so as told, mean no Western education for women, de facto, meaning. So isn't this something strange? And this brings us even back to Schiller, I mean, no? That the, the basic political question becomes how, and the saddest thing, I know this is false, but that's how it functions, is that, uh, because as some friends, you, this may surprise you, but I have even friends in, in, in Nigeria. And they told me what's so tricky about Boko Haram is that their logic is formally an anti-colonialist, anti-imperialist one. They claim imperialism is not just economy, it's also destructive cultural influence. And the basis of this destructive cultural influence is the feminist propaganda, which destroys the natural hierarchy and this way threatens to dissolve all of society. In the same way, similar way, this, the story goes on then to Mugabe, who made recently a speech in United Nations, claiming that gay rights are basically Western colonialist uh, uh, propaganda. And don't jump now too quickly to conclusion. My point is just not here to make fun of primitive Africans or whatever. The point is, of course, that up to a point this is true. I mean, we should not forget what happened, for example, in Iraq, that to their disgrace, many American-centrist liberal feminists supported American aggression attack on Iraq, claiming that at least it will liberate women there. And the irony is wonderful, as you probably know. The opposite happened. That is to say, whatever you are saying, and that's the sad thing that is happening, whatever you say about, and I don't like them in any way, uh, Saddam, I don't like it because, you know, we tend to forget that before he was overthrown and a couple of years before, Saddam was de facto the big American ally there. Don't you remember the war against Iran where United States not only provided Iraq with poisonous gases, but even <laughs> provided the Iraqi army with satellite uh, photographs to know where to use. The Americans only protested when Saddam used some gases against his own people, but not when he used them against uh, Iranians. This was for me a mega. Here I agree. I even wrote a couple of years ago a text, which maybe now I would not put it, give Iranian nukes a chance. When I told them, of course, Ir Iranians are traumatized. You remember the war. Iraq, after Khomeini revolution, Saddam thought, okay, now it's a chance, Iran is in chaos, he clearly invaded Iran. I don't remember any Western non-aligned whichever party which clearly stated this. All the calls for peace started to arise when Iraq started to lose the war. Then all of a sudden, oh my God, but war is not the solution, and so on, and so on. So what I'm saying is that, uh, no, but whatever we say about Saddam and Assad, they are horror, yes. 
Do you know that these were the only two Middle East states which were at least formally secular? And this meant something, like, as already mentioned it here even, I think, Tariq Aziz, the uh, Saddam's foreign minister, the public face of his regime. He was an Iraqi Christian. You know, it was the main result, social result, of American occupation of Iraq. They dissolved the army, police fell apart, Muslim militias took over public order. So there were under Saddam two million of Christians there, now most of them emigrated, and point to women's role is much more diminished. So this is a wonderful irony. United States, a Christian country in some sense, invades Iraq to liberate women and so on, and the result is exactly the opposite one. Women are more oppressed, plus Christians <coughs> disappear from the country. So again, you know, don't accept, this is for me the beginning of critical thinking, don't accept the terms of the debate, like war on terror. You should always question, but is it really this, what is going on? Frankly, I don't know what is going on. I only know that it's definitely not some kind of a simple uh, war on terror. I met yesterday my good friend. I'm mentioning this not to boast, but to remind you that he's still alive because he's slowly getting desperate. Julian Assange, who told me that now again he got some material that they will publish, but nobody cares what now WikiLeaks are publishing, which clearly reconfirms what we already knew for, from some documents that in spite of their official opposition, Israeli and Saudi Arabia representatives are all the time meeting with the task of how, how to contain Iran. So who is fighting whom there? Another thing that worries me is, it's clear now that bombing will not do the job. So they are now trying to organize some independent Sunni forces to occupy that era. There will be some kind of, even if by proxies, military occupation. And then I see, even for world peace, a great danger. Uh, what will happen then with uh, Assad regime? Will they not be tempted, these independent forces, to move into Assad? What will then the Russians do there? And so on and so on. Again, I think that Whatever is going on, it's absolutely not some kind of a simple, now we have an enemy, war on terror, and so on and so on. Even Israel, this is a subtle thing to note, how Israel never really unequivocally condemned uh, the Islamic State. There are even some very obscure links with Israel, I mean, this was... I don't know if I already told you this story. This was a big scandal in Israel, you know, when they discovered that uh, Israeli army is basically uh, helping Al-Qaeda. Why? Because in the south of Lebanon, the part, one part is called on Israeli border by Al-Qaeda, the other part by, by Hezbollah. And since Israeli fear more Hezbollah, and since Hezbollah and Al-Qaeda are fighting, of course, they are helping Al-Qaeda there. I mean, some Israeli photographer, even they had shots of how they are giving them arms, treating their wounded, and so on and so on. So again, don't, it's simply that the situation is obscure, who knows what, absolutely we should reject 
the terms of what is happening. The second thing I wanted to say, maybe you know this line, I've written about it, but I don't know where it was published in, in, uh, in English, I think only on the website of Newsweek, which is one of the few still ready to publish me because I'm now prohibited in Guardian and so on and so on. Ah, to be fair, they do invite me still, but I don't even reply them to appear open, but you know with what topics? This kind of a social way of life topic. Like a year ago, I got a letter from, uh, email, from Guardian. <coughs> Professor, would you care to answer the question, why do you wear a beard? How does it help your creativity and so on? You know, they, this is a systematic move to this, like who cares about politics, lifestyle and so on and so on, you know. Okay, but let me go on. So uh, now I'm approaching the topic of violence and so on. My big reaction to this uh, 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 latest Paris killings is, again, of course we condemn them, but, but it's not that we should understand them and so on, but it's uh, that we should really condemn them not just, again, use this as a kind of a pathetic spectacle of solidarity of all of us, free democratic civilized people against the murderous Muslim monster or uh, monster or whatever, because, ah, I want to tell you this, although it's anecdotic, my God, I hope I'm not losing uh, too much time. Uh, I am, but what the hell. Uh, you know that I made a statement apropos Charlie Hebdo killings, where a journalist in my own country, Slovenia, asked me, uh, what do you think about those Paris murders? And okay, I was a little bit fast, but I said, listen, the truly disgusting thing was that photo opportunity. You know, when you had all the world leaders holding hands and hopefully, this is sometimes God is benevolent and allows this, there was a photographer 50 yards behind, taking in the whole scene, you know? There was no crowd on the top of which there were all those world leaders. There was simply just leaders and three, four lines of obviously secret policemen behind them. That's why all the shows were, shots were closed. It was pure photo opportunity. And I said, listen, if you already want to shoot somebody, it would be much better to shoot those politicians there for their hypocrisy. Ah, the Slovenian right-wing press is now systematically for two months attacking me seriously. This is not a joke, what I will tell you now. Demanding that I be prosecuted for terrorism because they claim since I call for the murder of those politicians, and since Francois Hollande was among them, and since Francois Hollande was also on the stadium in Paris, so what the, these latest attacks in Paris are, they just uh, executed my comment. <laughs> so I'm not only justifying them, I even co-organized them. And they're quite serious. They wrote an appeal to Slovene public prosecution, like we already have terrorists in our midst. Why am I not prosecuted? They informed French embassy that France should start, should start proceedings against me for instigating So we live in crazy times, but that's not uh, important. We all knew this. Now, a little bit more serious stuff. What I've written about is, I remember a comment on Slovene TV 
TV, which was simple but deeply justified, I claim. After a Paris attack, they asked one of the refugees what does he think about it. Of course, they want him to join this universal solidarity. And he said something simple, stupidly simple, but very nice. He said, we deeply sympathize with Paris victims, but you see, this is what we are running from. And then he made a nice comment. He said, you see, for you, this is a singular event. Oh, my God, attack. But what for you is a singular event once a year is for us daily life. Now you understand what we are running from. And this brings me to a point I made long ago. Isn't this the first thing that we should note? There are exceptions. I simplify it. But the big difference between the West, we who live under this cupola of human rights, relative welfare, and so on, for us, Terrorist attacks are momentary, brutal disruptions of, uh, of, of normal, everyday life. Life goes on, boom, things explode, then you have solidarity, normal life is gradually established, and so on and so on. But again, the horror of what goes on in many countries outside Europe is that Brutal violence is simply a fact of life. It's not an exception. They, this is their daily life. Uh, so I claim that uh, uh, we should, the first thing is that we should, when we talk about violence, we should become aware and draw all the consequences from this tension. For us, it's just momentary disruptions, if, even if they are relatively big ones, like September 11th. But nonetheless, life then returns to normal in the sense of, yes, we do the work of mourning, we do all the stuff, but it's over. Like, it's a momentary event. Why? In those countries, many countries, it just goes on. And then from here, we should go on to all the levels of violence that still pervade around the world. For example, and here I want to go to Jacqueline's wonderful text on Pistorius, where she pointed out how Pistorius' killing of his girlfriend has to be read against the complex background of white men's fear of black violence as well as of the widespread terrible reality of violence against women. A quote from Jacqueline's text. Every four minutes in South Africa, a woman or a girl, often a teenager, sometimes a child, is reported raped. And every eight hours, a woman is killed by her partner. The phenomenon has a name in South Africa, intimate femicide. Or, as the journalist Margie uh, Oxford calls, the repeated killing of women across the country, serial uh, femicide. And the reason I admire Jacqueline's text is that she avoids in a masterful way both wrong procedures here. The one would have been to play the European arrogance. You see these black people, the moment you give them freedom, they start killing their own women. This hypocritical deploring of the third world violence. And the other 
again, the opposite, of course, is to claim that this uh, condemning violence there is just a neo-colonialist game of blaming them and so on and so on. The first thing to bear in mind is, again, the presence of violence also, even although we may appear to live in uh, highly developed uh, 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 countries with even ethical development, uh, uh, women's protection, feminism, and so on and so on, but are we aware what is going on now even in some developed countries? Like recently I learned a terrifying thing that maybe some of you read about it. I was told it was a big news there, where there, in Canada. <coughs> Uh, Native American, okay, politically incorrect term, Indian prostitute, was killed by a white customer. The way she was killed is not very unpleasant. She put a long knife into her vagina and started turning around and cutting and so on. Now comes the double scandal. The first part of the scandal, all this was confirmed. Nobody denied this. He was set free. He wasn't. The jury set him free. How? Uh, now comes the horror. It's so depressing. I warn you, it's really depressing. The, uh, the defense did something unheard of. As part of their defense material, they have shown to the jury the torso of the dead woman. Lower part, obviously, they cut it into two of the body up to her knees with all the wounds. I mean, can you imagine how disgusting this was? And what shows an incredible level of anti-feminist racism is how nobody protested since it was a native woman. You know, it was... And then, can you imagine the absolutely disgusting procedure of the defense lawyer said, you see here, my customer moved his knife here and so on. It was really this half rotten lower part of the body there. The defense was that it was all part of a kinky, slightly perverted sexual game, which ran out of control. That it wasn't a murder, that this customer, that was his defense. I made a deal with her. It was a market contract that I can softly put a knife into her vagina. She accepted it. And then we started to play. And that I warned her it will be weird sex. So even when she started to bleed, I thought it's still part of the contract because that was the disgusting defense, because she was well known to accept uh, uh, customers with weird desires. And then the game simply ran out of control, but it was mostly her guilt by provoking me and so on and so on. So you see the horror. I mean, it was absolutely no doubt what happened. Nobody disputed this. And this is what shocked me. This is for me the most depressive part of this report, that one would have thought that if you show literally part of the body there, half rotten and so on, you can't imagine cut, I mean, with 
sorry, but here I'm an abstract humanist. That with normal people, this should give rise to some kind of sympathy for her. My God, this was once a young, beautiful woman. Look what's, what became of her now. No, it convinced the jury against her. Can you imagine what kind of deeply racist and anti-feminist stance had to be at work there if they were able even to swallow this? The half-rotten feminine torso and not out of... Because, you know, that's what shocked me. First, when I heard this report, my reaction was that probably prosecution did this to arouse sympathy. Now we will show you, it will be disgusting, but now we will show you uh, what the murderer did it. No, it wasn't. It worked against. Can you imagine what a thick set of anti-feminist and so on, racist, because it's crucial that the girl was uh, a Native American. You know, what extent of, again, this... Uh, racist presupposition and so on, all this, all this implies. So again, coming back to my main point, uh, I am aware of the immense tension here and danger of cultural imperialism, neocolonialism and so on. And I'm sorry if I'm repeating an old story, but I am well aware of this danger from my old sources in ex-Yugoslavia. In ex Probably you know the story when in the early 90s in Bosnia, women, raped women, established some society association and some American feminists contacted them and people still laugh about it, even now, 20 years later in Bosnia. I was told by some Bosnian friends. Because the activists mocked uh, how uh, uh, they got a letter from an American feminist group trying to establish contact. And the letter was so insensitive, like there were desperate women there, serially raped and so on. And the questions that the Americans addressed to them was, I'm not kidding, like the first question was like a vulgarized Judith Butler question. Like, do you think that women have an eternal feminine essence? Or do you think that, that woman's identity is the result of performatively enacted uh, practices of repetition? You know, like the women just uh, look there. Of course, these are incidentally, theoretically pertinent questions, but I claim to put it in this way. It's just beyond description for me. So I am well aware how the immediate export of Western feminism and individual human rights can serve as a tool of ideological economic neocolonialism. But at the same time, I claim that, and it's quite incredible how up to a point as a reaction to the latest gains in, you know, gay marriages, abortions, and so on, we have this, as it were, sexual difference counter-revolution. It's not just Boko Haram, it's, uh, it's not just Mugabe against gays, it's even Putin. You remember, I know I mentioned it here, that story when that Austrian transvestite Conchita Wurst, I, it's disgusting, I don't like it, but when she won Eurovision, there was an incredible campaign in Russian media claiming, ah, is this new Europe, uh, uh, a bearded, woman. And then with 
open, like even Putin said somewhere that uh, I thought in the Bible it says that there are women and men. What entity is this now? And so on and so on. So this recourse to, to, this recourse to sexual difference. And the whole art of politics, I claim, that's all I'm saying, is to, is to, is to bring these struggles somehow together. What I, I mean, I know that we should avoid our Western anti, sorry, feminism. The point is avoid in the sense of not simply directly, mechanically applying it to it. But uh, I don't accept the logic of now it's a big battle, for example, for human, no, for, for, for refugees and so on and so on. So let's not mention that now. The strategy should be to even reject the idea that there is a competition between the two of them. It should be somehow done as part of the same struggle. If we don't do it, then we, we run the danger of what happened a couple of years ago. I don't know if you remember it, when a, a right-wing populist, Pim Fortuyn, was killed. But he was an interesting populist. He was what I'm almost tempted to call a politically correct populist. He was anti-immigrant, but his activity was, uh, he was openly gay, and his activity was precisely a kind of a politically correct rejection of Muslims. Because unfortunately, some Muslims in, in uh, Holland, in Netherlands, were effectively attacking gays. And you know, he succeeded to mobilize gays and feminists on anti-immigrant base. So I only claim, all I claim is that this is effectively a, a, a complex situation and that you cannot resolve it in an easy way. Then let's go on. My God, this was meant to be a short introduction, but uh, let me go on. Okay, let me, I want to do something about divine violence. I don't have time now, I will try to cut it short because I will talk about this in Ramallah next week. My idea is that I tried to locate what, uh, what happens now with these latest attacks with knives in Israel. I in no way agree with them, but one has to say a couple of things. And my source here is not some Al-Qaeda information service. It's simply whatever there remains of half-honest Israeli press, Haaretz, and so on. Even in New York Times, you find here and there news about this. But do you know that there is, it's not only that Palestinians out of despair attack with knives, Israelis, I mean, Jews in Israel, Palestinians are also Israelis, many of them, and then, of course, understandably, Israeli uh, Jews counterattack. What about not just passive bureaucratic harassment, but the level of violence on the West Bank? Nobody talks about this. My God, it's daily violence. Like, you know that every year when there is a season of uh, harvest season, 
Settlers are burning, uh, are burning olive trees. They are poisoning wells of water, even burning mosques. Killings go on regularly. For example, recently, I think, there was some trial in Israel where they even know who were settlers who burned some Palestinian family. And somehow they squeezed it. Nothing happens. They found a way out and so on and so on. So again, the first thing to reject is that Israelis just want peace. First, I would say, of course, Israelis want peace. My God, in the same way that Germans, when they occupied France, they wanted peace. Every occupying force wants peace because it, it, it got what it wanted. So peace means we, the world, but even this is not true. I mean, it's not, it's not, the, the Israeli image is, it's peace then, Israeli provocations, sorry, Palestinian provocations trigger our retaliation. No, it's not that. It's permanent violence there. But what interests me is this, and this is a thing that I really uh, find sad. How, what is now happening with these knife attacks is effectively close to something that Walter Benjamin calls divine violence. And he defines it in a, in a very precise way. He defines divine violence as violence, which is, I quote Benjamin, not related as a means to a preconceived end. It is not a means, but a manifestation. So again, divine violence is not what we for Benjamin, is not what we today call religious violence uh, justified by some fundamentalism. No, because that is still instrumental violence. You do this to terrorize the enemy to achieve a certain goal or whatever. But uh, for this is where, incidentally, in his attack on me, I claim Simon Critchley totally misreads Benjamin, where he reads divine violence in the sense of kind of a desperate strategy, like some, although we should reject violence, but sometimes when there really is no other way in order to achieve your goal, freedom, you have to do a little bit of violence. No, this is exactly what Benjamin does not mean. He means violence, which is like a manifestation of rage without any strategic or whatever instrumental justification. And my Palestinian, and aha, there is another tendency with Benjamin. I like to smash it because, uh, you know, Benjamin is today a good guy, untouchable. So the problem for those politically correct uh, Western liberal friends of Benjamin is how to neutralize divine violence, how to make it some kind of a sublime symbolic gesture, nobody is really hurt, and so on. So, no, 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 sorry, Benjamin is already, from the examples that he quotes in his Critique of Violence short early text, it's clear what he means, and my friend Sami Katib, Palestinian specialist of Benjamin, the organizer of that conference, found in a, a friend of Benjamin, Werner Kraft, in Werner Kraft's diary, an entry from May 20th, 1934, 
where Kraft reports on his conversation with Benjamin. He is asking Benjamin how he relates today, more than a decade later, to his notion of divine violence, critique of violence. Look what Benjamin answered. Quote, a just right, it's gerechtest recht, uh, a just right, is what serves the oppressed in class struggle. Class struggle is the center of all philosophical questions, including the highest ones. What he, Benjamin, earlier called divine violence was an empty spot, a liminal notion, a relegative idea. Now he knows that it is class struggle. Violence, which is justified, has nothing to do with a sanction. It doesn't add anything to the thing. It is without a sensible image, like, for example, the crown of a king and so on. One can kill when one does it in this way, like one kills an ox in a slaughterhouse. The just war at the end of the article on violence, class struggle, and so on and so on. So whatever you say, Benjamin wasn't gentle here. He really meant violence. He didn't mean some sublime gesture of a great nowhere, we all cry in solidarity and so on. So how to read it? Here I am, uh, 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 I will, and then I will of course immediately answer your counter question, but, uh, but uh, uh, my uh, reaction here is first that, yes, we do have examples of divine violence today. There were elements of it, and I'm here uh, uh, correcting my false judgment. You remember that riot in the UK a couple of years ago, and I wrote a text with which I no longer agree, where I accuse them of uh, consumerist riots. Just, uh, no, I think it's maybe closer to divine violence. Or especially years ago, you remember those cars burning in the suburbs of Paris. What was so mysterious, it feeds Benjamin. It was just a manifestation of rage. It didn't have any clear goal. First, they thought it's Islamism. No, it was not. The first thing that protesters in Paris suburb burned were their own mosques, cultural centers, and so on and so on, cars. They didn't have any program, and so on and so on. And I think it's similar with this knife attacks in Israel. There is no, there is no secret terrorist political program behind it and so on. It's just a, a manifestation of zero level, let's call it manifestation of rage. And now comes the crucial point, at least for me. You will ask, tell me, but nonetheless, we should be opposed to it. Here I, in a non, it's not justice. Uh, here, maybe you'll be surprised by my, by my position. In some sense, of course, we should oppose it. Like, fuck you, if I were to find myself threatened by a crazy mob, I would probably run away like hell or even shoot back. But you see the fine point. But nonetheless, I have no right to simply condemn them. That's crucial. It's the same problem as my friend, maybe you know the story, I'm sorry, Tom Mitchell, critical inquiry guy, told me he had this problem. He lives in that wealthy area uh, south of Chicago, University of Chicago campus, and north from the campus is a black ghetto. Uh, Louis Farrakhan lives there, and it's, uh, 
Muslim blacks and so on. So he wanted to be politically correct and he sent his son to a high school on the borderline between uh, uh, college area and ghetto. And then after three, four weeks, he didn't know what to do. His son came home at least twice a week without, uh, w uh, with a broken nose, without a tooth, and so on and so on. And he saw the problem. The problem is that on the one hand, of course, it would be crazy to demand of him, no, you should sacrifice your son for a higher solidarity with the blacks and so on. So, of course, as an individual, you protect your son. But at the same time, and that's crucial, you have no right to simply condemn the blacks. This is also, for me, an aspect of divine violence. You should rather ask yourself, and this divine violence, so that you will not misunderstand me, in no way I do think that terrorist attacks are divine violence. No, 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 they are not just a manifestation. I'm not in any way justifying them. We should condemn them. But with these desperate acts, like uh, attack with knives, listen, you cannot justify it, and nobody even tries to justify them with, through some political strategy, fear, and so on, of, uh, of, of, of uh, fear, uh, installing fear into Israelis. They all know, if you ask them, that it's a desperate strategy of... Uh, it's a desperate strategy which is just a manifestation of rage. And uh, we have no right to simply condemn it. And you will say, but then what to do? You have to fight it if you are caught in it. I mean, you will not say there, please kill me. Yes, we historically wronged you or whatever. But that's the, that's the authentic historical tragedy for me. You know, that, that's our contradiction, us, of white men. Of course, physically, you protect yourself. But at the same time, you have no right to dismiss the violence which you suffered as simple injustice of a monstrous other, and so on and so on. You should rather question what kind of a society is this where the only way to articulate, not even articulate, express your Rage is through this type of uh, divine violence. I will just go, if I can, uh, a little bit further. Okay, I will do a short report on what I wanted to say, but I didn't. Uh, recently, something wonderful happened. Uh, uh, it was reported, I know it was a hoax, then on September 7th, Sarah Palin gave an interview to Fox News where she told the interviewer, Quote, I love immigrants, but like Donald Trump, I just think we have too darn many in this country. Mexican-Americans, Asian-Americans, Native Americans, they're changing up the cultural mix in the United States. I think we should go home, we should go to some of these people and just ask them, would you mind going home? Would you mind giving us our country back? Then, this guy, Steve Ducey, told her, Sarah, you know I love you, and I think it's a great idea with regard to Mexicans, but where are the Native Americans supposed to go? They don't really have a place to go back to, do they? 
Sarah replied, well, I think they should, because they are called, remember, Native Americans. I think, I think they should go back to Nativia or whatever they come from. <laughs> the liberal media treats Native Americans like they are gods, as if they have, just have some sort of automatic right to be in this country. But I say if they can't learn to get off those horses and start speaking American, then they should be sent home to Nativia too. Now, of course, it's too beautiful to be true. It was an intelligent hoax. But I claim it, this hoax is a reality. It was a reality maybe also somewhere else. It was a reality up to a point in Canada where they constituted these reservations as their version of Nativia. Nativias exist. Maybe Sarah Palin is the hoax, but reality is not. And the greatest example of Nativia is, of course, where Bantu stands in the apartheid South Africa. You know, remember what madness were Bantu stands. The South African government selected, picked, I think, around 30% of the worst country, no minerals, uh, fertile, and simply in f they made them pseudo-autonomous sovereign states and informed the black people, this is your true home. You are from there. And uh, this is a wonderful mixture of this postmodern contingency, everything is constructed, and the rudest not. Can you imagine a black person who lives from times immemorial, his family, I don't know, were in Johannesburg, and then she is informed, cuckoo, good news, we found your real home. You come from that, and he goes there, it's just dessert, nothing, and so on, and so on. And I claim that if you read Netanyahu's speech, where he described his position for the two-state solution, it's basically Bantustans, no? What he's ready, but even that will not be the case, is to take some isolated parts of the West Bank, which will be totally controlled by by, by the Israeli army and give them this type of, uh, this type of uh, mock autonomy or whatever. But now, the last point, which again, I think uh, is uh, crucial to say. Maybe with this I will conclude and we go tomorrow into death drive uh, and so on. Concerning the refugees. Now, this is consciously problematic, but believe me, I mean it in an extremely positive way. I'm sick and tired of this postmodern narrativization, which basically tells the following story. Immigrants or the poor, the other. They are good people. You just have to listen to their story, to learn to listen to them, and so on. You have to understand them. And then you will see they are humans like us. I'm totally opposed to this. You know why? And I even, oh, this is positive phenomenon. I read in Guardian or where that now with some Syrian families in Glasgow or somewhere in Scotland, that they are doing this, like organizing meetings, six families and, you know, of Syrians. Okay, it works, but I warn you, it works only up to the certain point. My point is the following one, which was masterfully formulated long ago by some leftist critic of Frank Capra films, you know, these pseudo-leftist uh, dramas, melodramas about the poor people, 
which all had this patronizing attitude. The poor people are wonderful human beings. You just have to understand them, open your heart to them. And then this cynical, wonderful leftist, I forgot who he was, theorist, said, okay, but then uh, what if you discover that they are not like you, that they are really not like you, then you can kill them or whatever. And my point here is the following one, that class differences, even cultural differences, are real differences. It's not, you know, that, oh, we just have to open our heart to the other and we discover we are all the same people and so on and so on. First, I want to repeat the old point that I already made a couple of times here about the most disgusting wisdom that I know is the wisdom of an enemy is someone whose story you have not heard. Like, you know, you fetishize the enemy. No, I totally opposed to it. Just think about it. So it's good to learn. Hitler was our enemy because, you know, we didn't open ourselves to hear his side of the story about <laughs> anti-Semitism, maybe. No, it's not only that if you hear his story, it's a pretty disgusting story. It's, the situation is even more tricky. I don't think the truth of Hitler is the story he was telling. The truth of Hitler was the horrors he was doing. And I don't think, I mean, for every crime that you do, you can construct a wonderful story. For every killing you do, you can construct a wonderful narrative of how you are really, I don't know what, protecting the larger human rights and so on and so on. So it's not only that there are stories which, if you understand the other story, he's even more your enemy. It's simply that, the, the, this, you know, when somebody opens up himself or herself or themselves to you. It's not the truth. It's not the truth. Like, just think about classical example. Oppression of women. No good patriarchal master will tell you I'm oppressing women, but whatever, you know the bullshit. I'm protecting them from the evils of the world. It's me who is the real victim by, and so on and so on, whatever. So, uh, again, I don't think that this inner experience is the moment of truth. No, it's the fundamental lie. We are telling stories to somehow justify, if we are doing it, the horrors that we are doing. That's why I also, I know you are uh, nervous, but give me five minutes. I'm more nervous, but I'm going to come and open up in a minute and respond to some of the questions. I knew this, that's why I said this. No, but just a point more. For example, this is why I reject this, we are all humans beneath our skin. When I was in Israel, maybe you again know the story, a horrible thing happened for me. A special Israeli unit entered a house, Palestinian house, looking for the father of the family who was allegedly a terrorist. And then there, was, there were only mother and some children in the apartment. And of course, they were all in a panic because military special police brutally entered the house and mother called a daughter who was crying, come here, come here, and her name. And one of the attackers, Israeli soldiers, discovered that that girl has the same name as his own daughter. And he stepped forward and showed to the mother, you know, you see my daughter, oh, we have the same daughter. I found this the most disgusting thing you can imagine. 
Like, oh, we maybe, maybe we are attacking you now, but deep in we are and so on and so on. No, I think the true respect for immigrants is I respect you even if I don't accept your story. I don't think we should patronize them into this ridiculous... No, of course there are rapists among them. But there are rapists, rapists among us and so on. Maybe we will never understand each other. But I don't want to live in a society where we understand everyone and so on. The true respect is the respect for the radical other whom you don't understand. And this is, I think, absolutely crucial. That's the true acceptance of immigrants. That, you know, we need superficial rules, cliches of tolerance and so on, even if, even if we do not understand, uh, even if we do not understand uh, each other. And again, I think that, again, I don't have time. Okay, now at some point I have to, to, I have to stop, but it's so sad because I have to stop. Okay, I will stop. But I, you, see, you see my point. I think that if we play this hermeneutic game of understanding and so on and so on, it's wrong. The only understanding, can, so we cannot talk with them, we can, but I repeat my old story. The only chance of understanding is struggle. Not struggle with them, but we share the same struggle. That's the understanding. Otherwise, we are in this shitty UNESCO territory. You know, those disgusting UNESCO books. All human cultures are great. This culture, that... No. The, the, our answer to clash of civilizations should not be mutual understanding of civilizations, but there is clash within each civilization. And to bring together in a line these clashes. Sorry. I right. No, it was not so great. Now I, you, I know what you were doing symbolically when I was talking. You were sharpening your knife there. No. <laughs> so now attack, yeah. Okay, uh, Slavoj, thank you. It is sad to stop you, but you do have two more days here, and I think we're all very aware that uh, my introduction was slightly off key because we have not yet heard about Hegel. Okay, I'm going to open it up for discussion, but I first of all just wanted to pick out a few of the things that I've heard. Slavoj say today, mm. and the extent to which a number of them have had, since this is central to his project, a mm. psychotic mm. resonance. Frankly, I don't really know what is going on. The situation is obscure and who knows what. Yeah. Which is to say that always inside his thinking, there's the limits of the knowledge of what he says. All right, so I think that's important. I was also very interested in the reference to the interpretation in the analytic scenario which is radically ineffective. And it's ineffective because it hasn't touched on the core of the belief. And yeah, I felt yeah. in that point you were continuing your work on the sublime object of ideology yeah, yeah. and its sort of, mm -hmm. uh, its deep and intractable components of political, social and psychic identification. I think it's very important today that you have insisted, as you often do, that people are not a priori good and that people do not speak the truth. But not the other. We also. No, we no, are us. Not, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely clearly. I felt you trod on very tricky and difficult ground, and I'm going to open it up for people to say. That's what interests me now. Well, yeah. Of course, what interests you about um, what can and can't be spoken, like honor killing in Palestinian societies and the way that can lead to a kind of 
a will to silence, that this is not the moment. And as a feminist who for years have heard from the left, we'll have the, revolu we'll, we'll have the revolution and then we'll deal yeah. with women's liberation. This is a song that I feel I've heard over and over again. However, Do you sing these songs? I, this of song, course I, I don't sing no. this song. Yeah. Of course I don't sing this song. But if we're talking about what can politically and politically not be spoken, and what can politically and can politically not be performed, I would say that your moment of performing, partly, the Canadian attack on mm. the Native American prostitute went over the limit for me. Okay. Oh, really? That's yes, interesting. for me. All right. So that, but I want to not make that just an attack on you, but yeah. open up the question of the limits of what is speakable and what is bearable, and how indeed, and you're absolutely right, and I thank you for your references to banter in the bathroom, how to talk about violence against women must be one of the most difficult and searching questions of our mm -hmm. time. Very interesting what you were saying about divine violence, because when you were talking about the absolutely interminable presence of violence on the West Bank as a daily yeah. occurrence. And That's then, crucial, yeah. Uh, crucial. Yeah. And then you cut to divine violence. And for one ghastly moment, I thought you were, which is simply a manifestation. I realized you were talking about the knife attacks. That's what you were collecting to the class struggle. And I know that for many people who read you and write about you, it is the transition between the manifestation of rage and the organization yeah. of the struggle against injustice, which is the hardest yeah, thing yeah, to yeah. theorize. Okay, so I'm just going to stop there, and I'm going to invite people to ask questions. But and can I just briefly, we will have time. No, because this, it, I, okay, I'll put it like this. Maybe we have here, I hope, simply a different strategy. Sorry, but I'm not bluffing now, you know. I'm not always just joking and bluffing. This is, for me, a very serious point, what you mentioned now. Because it came, you see, this is the feminine evil, it came from a totally unexpected direction. That, you know, I am well aware of a... Even I have my limits, like, let me put it in this way. If I were to have a photo of what happened in that courtroom. You wouldn't show it. I wouldn't show it. That's my limit, believe me. No, that's too much. Uh, all, uh, but my point is only this one. I simply thought that, you know, like what Primo Levi says, th that famous conversation that uh, a Nazi torturer in Auschwitz tells him, nobody will believe us, and so on. I had the same problem, but my idea was I have to shock you with this because it's so crazy that if I don't tell you, nobody could even imagine that something like this can happen. Because I even still now, it looks to me ridiculous. How can something like that happen? Can you imagine? I will not say it again. It's too disgusting. You know, it really literally happened in a courtroom. I mean... It was, so I thought that without me shocking you, it wouldn't have worked. You have to be okay. shocked and then to ask what type of... Okay, I, I take that point. I just want to say... No, no, but the, I wanted the to counterattack. In a minute. The piece on banter in the bathroom is being published by The Guardian Africa. And halfway down the piece, I noticed they had a picture of Pistorius on his stumps in the courtroom. And I immediately emailed them back and said, I don't want you to use that picture. Okay, I don't want you to use it. That was the humiliating 
of the man in the courtroom. Never mind what I say about him. Yeah, yeah. He should be in jail, right? I'm hoping the appeal tomorrow, mm. which is going to be decided mm. tomorrow, will send him down for 15 years. I said, never mind. You don't show that image. Okay, you can now no, counterattack, no, no, no. but we mustn't make it just... No, uh, no, 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 no counterattack. Oh, no because maybe I was oh, wrong. No, no, you, you okay. made me seriously... Doubt Think it, about you know, it. Well, yeah. it's a question. It's a yeah. question. Okay, let's. No, but sorry. Questions. Another thing, sir. But I have to. This is so important because I. This is a wonderful topic. This is why I hate you. In the sense of loving you. In the sense of, uh, you are too bright for your own good. Sometimes you know what I mean. <laughs> you ask the right aggressive questions, and I like the point that you made here that. You know, I hate it in Charlie Hebdo reactions. We in the West. Uh, we can make fun of everything. No, there are things we shouldn't be, oh, and we have to openly accept this, debate it, what is it not, because, you know, we shouldn't simply play this idea. You, there are even some prohibitions which can be deeply justified, you know. Yeah, okay. It's not that you can, like, again, the one I mentioned, although it's too overexploited, because it's, I don't even agree fully with it, but... All those liberals who claimed, oh, but we can make fun of everything. Fuck you, make fun of Holocaust, and you will see how long you will survive. Nobody would have published it. And not saying this is not right, but let's not play this game of with us you can talk about everything. No, you cannot, and it's good that you cannot. Okay. Uh, my friend and I used to have a list, a book we were going to publish, of things that men would only ever say to women. And top of the list was, I love it when you're... I love a good argument. And second on the list was, you look beautiful when you're angry. And third on the list is now going to be, you're too bright for your own good. OK. Uh, yeah, OK. We, we, op we open to the floor, please. <laughs> no, but this is the usual American racist, low-class approach to intellectuals, no? We don't make a convincing. Oh, it is true. I remember somebody in America once saying to yeah. me, she's yes. too cerebral for this appointment. Yeah. Yes, okay, please. I'd like to ask you um, about your last point about immigrants and uh, your um, rejection of the idea of getting them to say that they're really the same as us. So you also talked about honor killing in Palestinian mm. society. Now, I'm oversimplifying enormously. Um, but I'd like to ask the question, what is your attitude when you discover honor killing amongst the immigrants? Do we say that's part of their culture? No. Here, this is what brought me into such trouble with many leftists who prefer, that's my impression, maybe I'm wrong, who prefer somehow gently to pass inside, like, the story I heard in Berlin, in Germany, it's, uh, it's a marginal phenomenon, let's not talk about it, and so on, and so on. But we should talk really openly about it. Like, one argument that I have, and here I agree, even with some of my critics, it, uh, <coughs> you cannot put all the blame simply on Israel occupation, but something is true. The fundamental attitude, here I respectfully disagree, not even respectfully, I don't like the guy, uh, uh, with Homi Baba, I think that the colonial strategy was always to reassert the most oppressive local traditions among the colonized. 
It was like, for example, no, because Komi Baba says, oh, uh, colonizers want to make everybody an Englishman. Absolutely not. This is my old story. It's a wonderful one. The most oppressive Indian book, one of the most disgusting ideological texts of all the time, text, uh, The Loss of Mano, the detailed description of caste system, what you are allowed to do, blah, blah. I learned from my friends in India that in 17th century, this book was half forgotten. It was revitalized by the British, who got it that in order to rule the Indians, they shouldn't destroy their traditional bonds. They become, then they become proletarians, a danger, and so on. They should, and they reprinted the book, restored it, and so on, and reactualized it as the perfect ideological means to control the colonizers, and so on. So, This is why, again, in spite of all the problems there with what can ANC government do, the great thing about African National Congress was that, as far as I know, they never fell into this trap of uh, return to African roots or whatever or whatever, you know. So, again, uh, I would say, but the second point that you mentioned, sorry, the, the point that you mentioned about honor killings, if they happen, and so on, and so on. The thing that would work for me, maybe I'm crazy here, and I know I'm, what's the English expression, walking on thin ice or whatever, you know. But the only way to do it is to do it not in this secret, oppressive way. We are all brothers, but secretly you terrorize them with prohibitions, but by explicitly stating some rules. These are the rules here. First rule, you can have your culture, but, and of course the same goes for us towards them, but the origin of evil here, I'm a traditional Rousseau moralist. The origin of evil is envy. The origin of evil is when you, when you do not tolerate what bothers you in another culture. You know, so uh, we should, uh, so uh, the first thing is actual tolerance. Sorry, if you are bothered by some features in, sorry, I will be very open here. For example, even in Slovenia now, and my friends, leftist friends in Sweden are telling me. For example, in Malmo, which is the greatest percentage of Muslims, they don't want the food they get in schools to be served. They don't want pork for their children. I totally agree with it. But then they go a step further and also don't want other children to get pork because it disturbs them and so on. There I set a limit. Fuck you, don't be, learn not to be disturbed by what others are doing and so on. So the second thing is, and this is an even more touchy question, and here I challenge you, it's not an imagined case. The one that I always mention from Slovenia, uh, Roma, racist term, gypsy family, where you have a girl who was traded in this family, uh, 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 how do you call it, uh, arranged marriage. Okay, he escaped. She escaped to police. And then her family wanted her back. And then, of course, all feminists raised hell, like ooh, women shouldn't be traded, blah, blah. And then the, the Roma authority, whatever their boss, uh, 
without irony, uh, said that, uh, but wait a minute, arranged marriages are the basic ingredient of our way of life. You take this from us, in two generations we disappear. Where is your cultural tolerance here? Here, this is a very touchy domain. All I'm saying is that the only honest thing is to set some limit here, to say, sorry, but Okay, this may be a Western specificity, but we, we set such a high price on individual decision that, you know, as I always repeat it, and I'm criticized for it, the, this is a ridiculous example because it's not central, you know, but I, the problem is not should women be allowed to be covered. No problem for me that. It, what French did is totally ridiculous, this prohibition. But the problem for me is, what if a woman or a girl doesn't want to wear it and family forces her to wear it? And I got some statistics from left-wing circles, not Pegida or those in Germany, so that you will not tell me that this is a marginal example. In Germany, there are over 2,000 cases per year where girls uh, escape from Muslim families because of different forms of pressures, how they should be, whatever, cultural pressures. And do you know that the Germany, German state has to establish, they have over 20 asylums where they do like for protected witnesses in criminal cases. They provide to these girls, they keep them there safe, then they provide for them fake identity and so on and so on. This is when people attack me, you are for Western values, of course. I am not for simply Western values. I'm just saying that this elementary level of freedoms, this should be firmly established, but in a firm but very discreet way, without any, because you know, we should also not forget, I'm very open here. My God, that uh, the majority of, what I fear is this, if we don't talk openly about it, you first, not talking openly about it, it's a way of patronizing racism. It's as if, you know, Muslims are too primitive. You cannot explain this to them, what is. You patronize them, and point two, you are directly laying the ground foundation for incredibly brutal uh, con cultural conflicts and so on and so on. I worry really for the immigrants, the result of Paris attacks, the result of this, uh, uh, the greatest victims of all of this will be immigrants. So I don't know what, okay, now people told me we shouldn't talk, then I, I had a wonderful debate in Germany where a guy told me we shouldn't talk about all this blah blah, and I told him, okay, let's say you are a judge, and a girl comes to you and says, I don't want to return to my family. What would you have done? You concretely as a judge. You cannot say, I will do nothing, because if you do nothing, probably the family will kidnap her back. Maybe, I'm not sure, but let's say. Maybe not, I know, and this is important to know. I would also try to postpone judgment as much as possible. But uh, you know what I mean? At some point, you have to decide. Okay. What no. do you think? Counterattack, please. No, 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 I'm not counterattack because there's so many people who want to talk to you. So this is a cheap way out. <laughs> How would you want to? It's a good way out. No, I so, agree with what you just said. 
Uh, at the end of your lecture, you stated that true respect is respect for the radical other who you don't understand. Yeah. And to me, this started to sound a little bit like, as you once put it, what the usual gang of democracy to come, deconstructionist, post-secular, Levinasian respect for otherness suspects might say. So I'm wondering what the difference, the differences are between your idea of respect for otherness and this way that overflows our knowledge of what that otherness is and what that usual game suspects would say about the topic. I like this type of question. Again, to put it in your book, you know, because this is the simple but evil question in a good sense, in a good sense, critical. You know what would have been my, my answer to this? That I'm still an old-fashioned European, but universalist, which means that I'm, I'm absolutely not, that now, I didn't go to the end, the second part of my argument. I'm absolutely not saying, so we are just strangers to each other. My first point is, no, we are not strangers to each other. We are also, I hate this phrase, because the way Julia Kristeva deploys it, it gets into a kind of a obscurantism, but we are also strangers to ourselves, of course. And my point is not that we are caught into our cultures, culture should not be the starting point at all. First, we live in a global, in this sense, universal society. And uh, capital is global. It's as if, you know, I don't like this idea of my culture, your culture, there can be some bridges, but maybe not. How do we know that we understand each other? We don't, but we know even less how do we understand ourselves. And if anything, my thesis is that much more provocative, that maybe only another culture can understand, or at least can understand much better one culture. Maybe you need a minimum of distance, of outsidedness, to really understand a society. Which is why, an example, maybe it's a wrong one, you can correct me, but. Which is why James Joyce had to go to Trieste to write the ultimate uh, uh, Dublin novel, and so on and so on. You know, like, uh, this would be second point, and that's the crucial one. I don't think we are just strangers towards each other. I claim that there are magical moments of struggle, social struggle, where all of a sudden we are universal. Like, let me take an example of, okay, it's problematic and so on, but I naively accept it. Tahrir Square, when was it? Two, three years ago. In spite of the way things went wrong later, Tahrir Square demonstrations in Egypt. I don't think this was just an imaginary illusion. This absolute immediate identification. Even if we didn't know all the cultural nuances, we somehow knew hundreds of thousands protesting uh, Mubarak, this is also our struggle. That was a moment of universal solidarity, which went beyond all that cultural bullshit of do we really know what they mean and, and so on and so on. So uh, uh, again, this is how I would answer you. Uh, first, when you talk about Levinas, you know, he, it's tricky with him, you know, in what sense? That Levinas, uh, it's interesting where he sets the limit of this other. Like in the most horrible text, I quote it somewhere that Levinas wrote about Chinese cultural revolution. He claims openly that the Chinese are not even an other, that they are simply this radical, not even otherness, 
almost, in, I don't know, he uses some horrible, he clearly claims that they fall out of all this dialectic of recognizing the other and so on and so on. So again, my point is that I want a struggling, fighting solidarity with immigrants, but not based on this cultural bullshit of I know your story and so on and so on, but more directly political, political, economic struggle, whatever. I, uh, this, is, this, is my, this is my problem here. I absolutely believe in universality, and we had, again, immediate examples of universality. That's my point. Universality is not some kind of a higher unity like that Israeli soldier showing you the picture, you know. Ooh, I have the same, uh, my daughter has the same name, you know, because the, the Palestinian woman should have answered him, fuck you. If our daughters have the same name, why then are you doing what you are doing to me now? I mean, you know, I hate this idea. It's a long military reactionary idea. You find it in Ernst Jünger and others. How? Even when you fight the enemy at a deeper level, you, have to, you can have a respect for the enemy. And even Levinas, with regard to Palestinians, he once used this very weird expression, mon enemy, bien aimé, something like this. No, I, I'm much more attractive to say, uh, don't respect your enemy and rather don't fight him. <laughs> you know what okay. I mean. Thank you. Another question here. I'm you. sorry, I didn't uh, uh, satisfy you, I know. Thank you. So this is one of, your, one of those stupid annoying questions that you, I know you love, but uh, on the topic of this new, perhaps virtuous war on terror that you mentioned, so our current European elites are not fighting the real war on terror, we need, we need to yeah. a real war on terror. So there was a very quick... No, I would be much more skeptical <laughs> if you can still call it war on terror. Okay. I mean. Yeah, so my question but is basically, uh, how do you imagine this thing to be actually carried out? Do you, is this like a utopian thing that you think can never actually happen or can be implemented by some utopian pan-European republic of virtue, maybe? Or do you think our elites today can do this, can have this kind of non-colonialist intervention? Do you think that thing no, is... I'm a little bit more... I know that in a stupid moment, maybe I went too far, I had a couple of stupid moments. One of them was maybe sticking to... Cyprus, Syriza government for too long. Yeah, because you know why? Because uh, now I will make some kind of a public confession. <laughs> no, because uh, <coughs> the big conflict, what we, what we, how are they called? Uh, new platform, the one uh, left. No. Popular, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, people told me, but look, they are the solution and so on. Sorry, I read in detail their program. It's total state socialist bullshit. It presupposes a fully sovereign state. You control it, you print money and so on. It absolutely would not have worked. They pretended that they had a solution, but here I had a respect for Tsipras. The deadlock, the problem was a real one. And I claim now we'll tell you something for which maybe you will help me, hate me, but I like to provoke it. This was a great act of wisdom of Greek voters that they didn't even allow this people's platform, whatever, into parliament, you know. 
But at the same time, I'm no longer as optimist as I was about Syriza being able to do the get guerrilla warfare and so on and so on. Uh, I don't totally trust Varoufakis, uh, but he is a wonderful guy. Privately, I talked with him and I told him, do you know that people blame you that because of your economy, economic mismanagement, Greece lost 90 billions. You know what he answered, how can you? Oh my God, he said, I wanted to make it at least 100. What a catastrophe. <laughs> how can you not like? No, but uh, quite seriously, you know, that's the tragedy of Syriza. The uniqueness of Syriza was for being in and out of Europe, not to step out, but to make trouble within Europe. And the moment Syriza fell apart, you had a normal social democratic party doing that neoliberal politics and the marginal left. It's simply the specificity of Syriza disappeared. And I'm not sure, what do you think? You know more. But maybe Varoufakis claims, I don't know enough. He, he is also, not only you, too bright for his own good sometimes, you know. Because he tried to convince me, talking that he had a plan of declaring default, but not leaving the euro. And like, like returning, how to call it, the, the ball to, to Europe, you know. He, and I think that, at least in principle, that was my desperate hope, that they had some, okay, not Tony Blair third way, but in this sense third way, not return to the old, simple, pseudo-radical left, which is a nice way to, to do nothing, like the Greek Communist Party, but uh, let me tell you a story which you don't know, I haven't wrote about it. And this is what really did hit me when Varoufakis told me the extent to which they were totally controlled, despite all the time private conversations. He told me, you know how uh, Tsipras nominated him the finance minister? Months before elections, they went to swim, and when they were 200 yards from the coast, Tsipras whispered to him, would you like to be? Because they assumed that, okay, now the truly horrible story. Uh, Varoufakis was on phone with Jeffrey Sachs. You remember that old, not old, he was more famous years ago, American economist. Okay, his friend, and told him Greek will, Greece will declare default. Then the conversation was off. Ten minutes after, Jeffrey Sachs called him back and told me, it's a horrible story, you know what happened? Five minutes after you, we ended our conversation, my phone rang, and a guy said, I'm from NSA. He presented himself and told him, uh, NSA? NSA, National Security oh, Agency, that one, the big one, and told me, uh, I appeal on your patriotic duty to, to give me just an estimation, a judgment. When Mr. Varoufakis declared that, that uh, said that Greece will declare default, was this a provocation or did he mean it seriously? It means not only they were listening to, but they had an instant group to estimate it. You know, it's, it's horrible. I mean, it's horrible. They were under, and I, will, I cannot go into public the way they were controlled. The key figure is some old ex-communist, Greek communist, 
who is the big banker or whatever, connected with banks. And it's such a complex story. Now, retroactively, we know that they maybe didn't really have a chance. But you know what worries me? Let me conclude very briefly with a joke that I like. It's an old Yugoslavia joke that it's a wonderful, no, Soviet, you know, in 48, Yugoslavia Tito split with Soviet Union. Soviet Union attacked Yugoslavia is going the right way. And there was uh, not very funny, but rather nice Soviet joke against Yugoslavia. Because Yugoslavia claimed to be faithful to socialism. It was that Marshal Tito, the boss, uh, comes to a crossing and his chauffeur asks him, what direction do we go now, left or right? And Tito tells the chauffeur, make the sign to the left, but turn to the right. This is our new policy. Wasn't it something like this with Syriza? Make a sign to the left, referendum, and then <laughs> turn right, you know? Maria, would you like to respond to this? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, I think we've got time for maybe one more question. Okay. Ah, there is one there. Yeah, no. Please. Get the, the guy with black shirt. Oh, okay. No, oh, sorry, we'll get another one. There are two questions. Oh, there two. Okay. Who? Oh, yeah, you're okay. <laughs> Sorry to make it personal, the neo-fascist. <laughs> okay, but that also, okay. Sorry. Okay. Uh, uh, some Scotland um, well, welcomed some uh, uh, refugees yeah. two weeks ago. And uh, well, those refugees, uh, they were told that they sh in order to live there in Scotland, they should have uh, to accept the values of this country. Which values? That's the problem. Yeah, and then, uh, um, and then some things that I sometimes I do not understand the arrogance of uh, Europe, um, because sometimes I keep thinking, if those values they were put in a can, and uh, they were add flavors and they were sold, would the Europeans buy those values? I mean, uh, from from the refugees, as for example, every day in Europe or even here in United in United Kingdom. <laughs> Loads and loads of people eat Chinese food, Indian food. Yeah. And then, actually, I don't understand what values uh, they are trying to defend to. When actually, United Kingdom or even Europe, it is a mixture of values from Asia, from Africa, and from so many other places. And then, what what what, what is it that uh, Europe fear actually? Uh, being mixed uh, to the culture of uh, nations that are not at the same economic levels as they are? No, I, I, I see your problem, and I think I precisely have an answer. Yes, it's very important to attack the right-wingers, to answer them, because if this was your implication, maybe it wasn't, I totally agree, to make my formal statement, I always repeat it. The, Europe is in danger. But the biggest, the only, not the biggest, the only serious threat to Europe are the anti-immigrant right-wing defenders of Europe. Europe with, uh, I don't know, from Le Pen to, okay, you keep, I almost like them because they are clowns. You know that I have strange friends. I met once at BBC, my good friend, how is the idiot called, uh, both of you keep, uh, Farage, oh please. Farage, yes. And I'm sorry to tell you if you have some secret right-wing hopes, but he's not the new leader, he's a clown. Oh, he's a complete clown. Yeah, complete clown. But what I'm saying is that this is the true end of Europe. But you know, still, maybe this is so problematic for me. 
I will say this, that what you describe as this mixture and how to do in this mixture, there is, uh, isn't, it, now we can of course play the game of, but this was not the reality of Europe and so on and so on. But uh, I, not only this, but listen, let's be frank. Feminine rights and so on, secularism and so on. Show me another, now I hate myself, I really appear Eurocentric, but show me another part of the world where you can do this openly, like uh, secular rights. In United States, I don't know how high you can go up if you publicly declare yourself an atheist. I think already a governor you cannot be. I somewhere heard, but it's a mythic rumor, that there is one member of Congress who openly says that he is an atheist. But even that I am not sure of, you know. So you see my point, I, I'm, I'm just saying that uh, I agree with you, we should be very specific. For me, the greatest legacy of Europe, among others, is a, not just tolerance of religions, but full right of secularism. And that's, for example, a debate I had with a Muslim friend. He's still a friend. He told me very nicely, I, as a Muslim, I want to be respected, not in spite of the fact that I'm a Muslim. You know, like, okay, uh, you are a Muslim, that's your private madness, but you are, I want to be respected for what I am, as a Muslim. I told him, okay, but are you ready to respect me for the very fact that I am an atheist? It was problematic, he somehow, you know, because then I did a daring thing and he laughed. I told him, are you really a Muslim? You know, because one of the most beautiful, ah, I know my stuff here, passages in Quran is where it says, let the one who believe choose belief, let the one who don't believe choose unbelief. That's people's freedom and so on. No, 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 there is, I'm well aware of a different, much more, to, listen, I, for, as from ex-Yugoslavia, I know the tolerant side of Islam. Listen, when the war started in the last one, in 91, we all of a sudden discovered that the only serious Jewish community in ex-Yugoslavia was in Sarajevo. Why? Because it was the Muslim part, no? We Christians, defender of Judaism, we threw them out long ago in, I don't know, 16th century or So what I'm saying is that when we speak today about egalitarianism, emancipation, women rights, women's rights, gay marriage, all that stuff, wouldn't you agree that this somehow emerged from Europe? I claim, and I studied it, that of course they claim you have uh, women, they also position of women in other cultures is also highly appreciated. Yes, but I want to take a close look at how, you know, like uh, when they appreciate highly women, it's usually in this stupid way of, you know, cosmic principle, yin, yang, the women also, and so on. But European modernity is something else, much more radical. It's not that we have two groups, two cosmic principles, and they should be kept in balance, or that Jungian stuff. 
It's simply that the universe is not sexualized and as a woman, feminine pupil of Descartes said, already in Descartes' life, asked, why do you like Descartes? Because cogito, cogito doesn't have a sex and so on. Okay, it's problematic, if truly. So I think that, again, we should just be aware how the very terms, here I challenge you, which we use to criticize Eurocentrism, and we should, is part of European tradition. Okay. Thank you. Uh, two more seminars tomorrow and the day after. Julia Eisner will be chairing. Thank Was, you. Not Maria. Maria says she didn't want to speak. Oh, Maria, are you chairing tomorrow? Yeah. Oh, great. Did you, you ask no, no, no. I, I don't ask you. I order you. Okay, no, I'm, that's great. No, so okay, don't so be Maria, too bright for your own good so that I, I know you her again. Thank you all. Thank you, and thank you, Slava. But I want, wait a minute, just one more thing. I want to ask you what is your next book. <laughs> I hope you will answer democratically without yes. democratic forces of compulsion like torture and so on. One on motherhood, one on violence. I hope the motherhood one is not Yulia Kristeva. Of course not. No, that, that's what, that's what Although your stuff on Europe is very much what she says about the Europeanness of a certain tradition. I never thought I'd hear you Oh my like God, that. That's, well, maybe I, I should rethink it no, a little. No, but I'm well aware that I'm walking or when it's no, 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 it thin water there, you know. But I'm, I'm, aren't you afraid that we are opening the, the space with this easy pseudo leftist tolerance for horrible things. I I'm really. What you said about tolerating it, as we always say about a relationship, it's not true that a relationship survives if you tolerate what is intolerable about the other person. A relationship survives when you know you cannot tolerate it. Yeah, do you write any, anywhere about no, it? Because no. I would like. Okay, I will put. Write it down yeah, 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 please, because this is. It's so crucial. This is the formula I was Give looking me your for. Email.